0: PFK in Los Angeles. This is living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, a story about Afghan girls who escaped from the Taliban in the boarding school that evacuated its students from Kabul during the chaotic withdrawal of the Americans. It's Sola, the School of Leadership Afghanistan, the place where Afghan girls study to become members of the generation that will one day lead a peaceful and united country. The founder, Shabana Basij Rasik will explain. Also, John Nichols will comment on how the fight for abortion rights will be a key issue for Democrats in the 2024 election, especially after Republican judges have tried to ban medication abortions. But first, today's news update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, of course, the big story this week is that Fox News agreed to settle that defamation lawsuit brought by Dominion Voting Systems. Dominion had sued for $1.6 billion. Uh, They agreed to accept $787 million from Fox uh, in exchange for avoiding a trial. Fox had defamed the voting machine company by knowingly or recklessly airing false claims that Dominion machines switched votes from Trump to Biden, and therefore Trump really won the election. The bad news is that Fox News will not have to issue an on air correction or an apology or an acknowledgement that they made false statements claiming election fraud. uh, where do you stand on the the gains and losses question here? Well, it would have been great to have the trial, you know,
1: and I think uh, what Rupert Murdoch, and I am certain it was Rupert Murdoch who made this decision, what Rupert Murdoch finally decided was that it was worth $800 million of his shareholders' money to avoid having himself in public <laughs> uh under oath answering questions about the frankenstein's monster he had created whether that should be the subject of a shareholder lawsuit strikes me as a good question but not one that i obviously can uh, can answer
0: and of course fox still remains the target of some other similar litigation these the fine print has reminded us another voting machine company smartmatic filed a $2.7 billion defamation suit against Fox last year or two years ago, accusing the network of falsely implicating the company in a bogus narrative about vote rigging in the 2020 election. A Smartmatic spokesman said Dominion's litigation exposed some of the misconduct and damage caused by Fox's disinformation campaign. Smartmatic will expose the rest. I would
1: suppose that, you know, uh, given all of the uh, uh, companies and uh, uh, entities that were alleged to be parts of this conspiracy, we might even see a lawsuit from the estate of uh, Hugo Chavez, the Venezuelan dictator whom Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani allege was in cahoots with Dominion
0: even though he was dead at the time and still is. The Smartmatic uh, lawsuit did have one immediate result. Fox Business canceled Lou Dobbs the day after the lawsuit was filed. And so we don't get to listen to Lou Dobbs anymore.
1: I suppose we could, uh, you know, find old speeches of... uh... (laughs) second-tier Nazis and play those to uh, (laughs) fill, fill this void in our lives.
0: So that's additional lawsuits against Fox that will seek to get Rupert Murdoch on the stand. There's also Dominion is suing some other people. Dominion is suing Rudy Giuliani. Dominion is suing Mike Lindell, the pillow guy. And they're suing Newsmax and the One America News Network. So this is nowhere near over.
1: No, it's nowhere near over. Although Fox is clearly the uh, eight hundred pound gorilla here, and taking down Fox it would it would be a a completely huge achievement. And I don't necessarily think that people who uh, are discontent that when they pay their cable TV bills a portion of it goes to uh, Fox News, I don't I don't think that they should stand down now. I think the egregiousness of what fox is doing should still be the basis of some forms of protest
0: this this is not really a lawsuit to defend democracy this is a private civil suit we keep the lawyers keep telling us between two corporate entities one of which had its reputation damaged and therefore its opportunities to make profits in the future that's the legality uh, of all this it's it's about being compensated for the harm to the reputation of the plaintiff we of course found a lot larger significance in this but that's not what the law says it is
1: no well obviously the the real issue was the harm to american democracy to standards of journalism to sort of fundamental empiricism actually the real lawsuit was people of the united states versus fox news but given the way our uh, legal system works it you know it took the, the shape of dominion voting machines versus fox news which which obviously imposed some limits but nonetheless the pretrial depositions made very clear uh, the degree to which fox news it was broadcasting uh, false claims and uh, did it anyway for fear of uh, losing audience, and as Tucker Carlson so memorably put it, seeing its uh, share value tank.
0: The underlying story here is how Fox News created this monster which now sort of rules the network, that their audience, they feared that the audience they created a decade ago would turn on them if they didn't repeat Trump's lies and, and go to these other. Outfits. So Rupert Murdoch is in a tough spot here.
1: Yeah, and this really is a classic Frankenstein story. You uh, you, you create something that turns into a monster, and then you you can't figure out how to, how to make it stand down, and fear that it's going to damage you in the process. So it 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 really is a, a, the classic tale brought vividly to life <laughs> by Rupert Murdoch, uh, his family, and the the powers that be at Fox.
0: Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, a regular feature of this broadcast. Uh, Striking faculty at Rutgers, who we talked about last week, have won a big new contract. They had a five-day strike. Higher-paid professors said they refused to go back to work without a deal acceptable to part-time faculty and grad student workers. Uh, As we reported last week, the governor summoned everyone to Trenton, the state capital, and on Saturday, in the middle of the night, the governor announced a 43% pay increase for adjuncts, a 33% increase for graduate student workers, retroactive to July 2022. So join a union, go on strike, get a 43% pay increase.
1: Yeah, and you know, if uh, if a union's going to amass some power, a college campus is clearly one of the more uh, advantageous places to do it. Uh, apart from this, I've been looking at National Labor Relations Board statistics on uh, efforts of grad students to form unions, those who are employed as teaching assistants and research assistants and so on. And since 2022, You know, the NLRB handles private colleges and universities, Uh, public colleges and universities are like the rest of government employees are not included under the National Labor Relations Act. And what they can do is based on what state governments let them to do, individual state governments let them to do. But of the 17 colleges where the grad students have voted, I would total up the votes, uh, 89% (laughs) of uh, the grad students who voted uh, at these 17 different colleges, ranging from Yale to uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute voted to go union. 80, so the, the vote was like 89% to 11%. We're talking about tens of thousands of uh, of graduate students. So, you know, there's no question that you know, this is a generation that is commonly labeled as woke, but I think it co- has to be commonly labeled as uh, pro-worker, pro-union as well. You
0: know, a couple of years ago, I thought, and I think most of us thought, that the situation of public universities was much more ripe for union organizing than private universities because, as the Rutgers case shows, the governor has an interest, a political interest of himself in being a leader in helping the poor. But a lot of private universities have had NLRB election, So the distinction doesn't seem to be as black and white as it once seemed like it would be.
1: Part of the reason for the distinction is that whether or not graduate students are officially classified as employees has gone back and forth in different rulings from the National Labor Relations Board. uh, Basically, when it's been a Republican board They've said, no, you're not. You can't unionize. And when it's been a Democratic dominated board, they've said, yes, you are. And you can unionize. Uh, but now I think this is becoming clearly uh, the uh, the norm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it also is coming at a time when uh, the uh, millennials and Gen Z's who are uh, college uh, students or grad students are, you know, more pro-union perhaps than at any time since the 1930s. So uh, uh, a lot of things have come together. But I think mainly it's the interpretation of the law that has opened the door to unionization and uh, at private colleges and universities.
0: Elsewhere in the class struggle in America, there's a fascinating report on Tesla at uh, prospect.org, a story about how Biden's Made in America initiative is not leading to good paying jobs. This story begins in 2008, long before Joe Biden, when George W. Bush signed into law something called the Advanced Technology Vehicles Manufacturing Loan Program. This was to encourage domestic manufacture of electric vehicles at a time when there were virtually none. The Department of Energy bet $465 million of taxpayer money in the form of a direct loan to this new company, Tesla, which wanted to build electric cars in Fremont, California. And as we know, that was one of the greatest successes in the uh, history of government loans, uh, creating new capitalist enterprises. Tesla is now the world's most valuable car company. But it also has the highest level of workplace safety violations of all us car makers it's racked up more infractions and fines in the last three years than all other automakers in the united states combined ceo elon musk has fought workers attempts to unionize we know by spying on them by firing organizers by mobilizing twitter against them uh the company's being sued by the state of california for anti-Black racism. It's being sued by several women for alleged sexual harassment. So here it is, the company that America's greatest car manufacturer is also a very lousy employer.
1: And I guess there's a tradition uh, Henry Ford was a notorious pro-Nazi anti-Semite. So Elon Musk is following in that proud tradition. Now that said, the Biden administration is trying to put conditions on the kind of loans and investments that it is making, uh, as opposed to the loan that went under the, uh, from the George W. Bush administration to uh, uh, get Tesla up and running. This is a work in progress. There have been some successes, there are requirements on some of these uh, grants uh, for providing childcare, for prevailing wages, that sort of thing. We at The Prospect are running a number of articles looking at this this question. And in part, the question is, in a broad sense, whether a renewed work on our infrastructure and whether a Green New Deal can produce, in a sense, the kind of jobs that we saw in the middle of the 20th century in unionized manufacturing, where the uh, wages and benefits were such to provide more or less a union uh, a union worker with a middle class lifestyle. So we we shall see, but that this is a work in progress encountering obstacles here and there, but uh, also getting the Biden administration and different cabinet departments really pushing for making the jobs in these new industries and these new factories uh, good jobs, and union jobs, if possible.
0: In other news, the Democrats announced their convention next August will be held in Chicago. Chicago, as we've commented here, just had an election for a new mayor, where the candidate supported by the police union was defeated by the candidate supported by the teachers union. So the Chicago police are unhappy. And those of us of a certain age remember that the Chicago police were also unhappy right before another Democratic convention there in 1968, when the whole world was watching. I think you were there. You were about, what, 10 years old? I was 18.
1: I was 18. (laughs) Actually, I was 10 years old when my parents took me to the uh, L.A. sports arena at the convention that nominated John F. Kennedy. But uh, that was really kind of before any particular political consciousness entered my cranium. You weren't uh, but, covering
0: that for the LA Weekly?
1: Uh, no no no, <laughs> I was I was uh, covering that for Kentor Grade School News, I guess. <laughs> okay. Uh, in Chicago I was uh, one of the very youngest people working on the uh, anti-Vietnam War presidential campaign of Gene McCarthy and clearly remember and sort of the supply side police riot uh, as it was termed, well, I added supply side, but the official governmental <laughs> report called termed it a police riot. That on the last night of the convention, after the cops had run amok in Grant Park and up and down Michigan Avenue, they had run out of people to beat up on the streets, which posed a kind of operational crisis for the <laughs> uh, for the police force. So they went up to the uh, uh, the hotel that would have been overlooking Grant Park, which was the ho- headquarters hotel for all of the presidential candidates in the party, and they went up particularly to the floor I was on, which was the junior staff floor of McCarthy workers, and you know, cleared us out gently with their nightsticks. So uh, that was uh, that was my experience, but it is it is the case that big city police forces, and I've covered a, a heck of a lot of conventions since then of both parties. Uh, big city police forces tend to love Republican uh, conventions and Republican delegates and really aren't that keen on uh, Democratic conventions and Democratic delegates. And the Chicago police, uh, upholding the proud tradition of 1968, the police union's leader has made clear that this was a union that endorsed Donald Trump each time he ran for president that was pushing the mayoral candidate who, uh, who lost and who predicted blood in the streets if uh, uh, the eventual winner uh, had, in fact, won. Uh, Brandon Johnson, the uh, candidate backed by the teachers union. So having predicted blood in the streets and given their record in 1968 and, you know, ongoing hither and yon since then, you know, who knows what we have to look forward to uh, at the Democratic Convention in 2024 in, uh, in, in Chicago. A city I love despite its police.
0: Of course, we're not expecting tens of thousands of young anti-war protesters to show up, or right. or a few dozen yippies coming to uh, nominate a pig for president,
1: and 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 uh, be accused of putting LSD in the city's water system too. That was another another issue then.
0: Trip down memory lane with Harold Meyerson. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always
1: great to be here, John.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about Afghan girls. It's been a little more than a year since the Taliban decreed that Afghan girls don't need to be educated past sixth grade. But there's one boarding school for Afghan girls that escaped from Kabul as the Americans withdrew and the Taliban took over. Its students now study together in exile in Africa. That's the work of an amazing person, Shabana Basij Rasik. She's the founder of Sola, S-O-L-A, the School of Leadership Afghanistan. It was featured recently on 60 Minutes in, in The New Yorker. Her TED Talk in 2021 has had more than 2 million viewers, and she's a contributing columnist at the Washington Post. This week, she's visiting California, where she joins us now. Shabana, welcome back.
2: It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you, John.
0: Before we get to the story of how you got your students and staff out of Kabul in those chaotic days when the Taliban had the airport surrounded, Let's talk about the recent history of education for girls in Afghanistan. Maybe let's start with your own education.
2: I was born and raised in Kabul, Afghanistan. And during my childhood, the first Taliban regime uh, came to power in 1996. That regime collapsed uh, shortly after 9-11. During that time period, um, they made education for girls illegal. And so I grew up during that time and was incredibly fortunate because my parents decided that it was uh, riskier to raise their children, especially their daughters without an education. So they took that risk, um, that enormous risk to themselves and all of us um, to make sure that my sisters and I received an education under the the Taliban regime, which meant um, that my sisters and I um, attended secret schools. These are underground schools that um, were operated by some of the most remarkably brave Afghan women who also um, decided that uh, it was riskier for uh, the Afghan society um, to have a generation of Afghan girls uh, without access to education than to risk their lives and the lives of their families to open up their living rooms to educating Afghan girls. And, And that's how I received my first uh, six years of uh, education attending a number of different uh, secret underground schools during the Taliban regime. So I understand
0: that when the Taliban were overthrown in 2001, there were no girls officially in elementary school in Afghanistan. 20 years later, uh, how many Afghan girls were going to school?
2: We had more than uh, 3 million girls um, in uh, in schools um, after the fall of um, Taliban. So you founded
0: Sola in 2008. Eventually it became a boarding school, the only boarding school in Afghanistan for girls. What was Sola like, say, a year before the Taliban arrived? Uh,
2: honestly, I w- want to take you to the beginning of 2021, the year the Taliban arrived in Afghanistan. January of 2021, uh, we had received a record number of uh, application uh, from Afghan students across the country, uh, close to 300 application from 31 of the 34 provinces for um, a um, sixth grade cohort of uh, initially 16 students that we would admit, but later uh, decided to admit 25 in addition to um, and the normal application that we received, what we found was that uh, more than uh, 30 of the applicants to SOLA that year were Afghan girls who had never, ever been to school. Someone wow. from their family or relatives or uh, supporters or some guardian had filled out an application on, on their behalf saying, "Here, here is someone who's 12 or 13 or 14 or 10 years old who has never had an opportunity to go to school because the district where she lived, for instance, had been constantly contested between the Afghan government and the Taliban forces. And so uh, as a result, girls' um, schooling uh, remained um, closed. And so we looked at 30 of those applications and decided we uh, wanted to admit a small cohort of uh, about five girls um, who had never been to school and that we would work with them in an expeditious way to um, bring them up to speed in a matter of a couple of years before they can start with our sixth grade. So that was the beginning of 2021. We admitted a cohort. Uh, Our new academic year started in March uh, late March of uh, 2021, um, despite COVID and that being prevalent, um, vaccinations being limited in Afghanistan, we managed to welcome our students safely, um, quarantine them, create a bo- COVID bubbles, uh, you know, safe space mm-hmm. on campus, and they were able to continue with their education. Uh, and then, and then August came around, and obviously,
0: so August. August 2021. Everybody had known the Americans were leaving, but nobody realized how fast the Taliban would arrive and how chaotic life in Kabul would become in that last week. Kabul fell on August 15th, and these were the days when getting even a single person through the panicked crowds outside the airports and through the Taliban checkpoints seemed nearly impossible. But you got 100 girls and 150 teachers, staff, and family members out, how did you do it?
2: It didn't start in August. Our preparation started right after the announcement made by the um, U.S. government in April of 2021 of unconditional withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. I knew, John, that it was a matter of time before it would be irresponsible of us to um, operate a boarding school for Afghan girls. Inside the country. Even with that, the possibility of Taliban takeover and that that quickly was not something that had entered my imagination, quite right. frankly. Um, a lot of people that I spoke with, whether that was in Washington, DC, or Kabul City, there were other scenarios that kept coming up. Those scenarios still concerned me because our students really um, did come to us from 28 of the 34 provinces. So I worried about their safety about road safety as they would go home from the school for vacation and so on. And so um, the the idea that made most sense uh, was let's engage all of our students and our community in a study abroad program, whether that lasts six months or a year, it will give our community an opportunity to be in a safe place, to provide our students continuity of learning to make sure that they, they don't have disruption to their learning as we figure out what happens politically in, in inside the country. And so with that, uh, we uh, engaged in a number of conversations about where we would take our study abroad program. A neighboring country made most sense because of familiarity, proximity, etc. cetera. But uh, the reality was that so many of our neighboring countries were already overwhelmed by the number of Afghans, who were quickly becoming refugees in those countries. We weren't making much of a, a traction in, in those conversations. And so out of the blue, the um, option that came became our reality was um, taking our entire school community to Rwanda, an East African nation that is uh, in so many ways a remarkable home for solar community now. Uh, and today.
0: tell us, please the story of how you got everybody into the airport through the chaotic crowds and checkpoints.
2: We initially were supposed to be departing Afghanistan on our own um, chartered flights uh, out of Kabul city um, on August, uh, just a few days after uh, the 15th. As we were finalizing those plans, of, of course, Kabul fell to the control of Taliban on the 15th. And Turned our um, carefully planned study abroad program into a traumatic uh, evacuation out of uh, Afghanistan, but uh, we um, really uh, couldn't present as a as a school community getting out. And so our students and our faculty and staff member and their family members really um, showed up uh, at the airport as family units. And this is
0: because the Taliban would not have allowed a large group of girls to leave altogether.
2: Yes. But at the same time, you know, we we weren't just trying our luck. We had um, I had been in conversation with the U.S. government and also the government of uh, Qatar for quite some time. And um, they were instrumental in, in our success. You know, that they had they were the ones ultimately giving lists of names of people who would get out of the country and our community members, our students and family members and so on. They were put on that list. And fortunately, initially, the the idea was that we would all leave in the same day, but because of the chaos of the crowd, as you are very well familiar with, it ended up taking um, three days uh, for our entire community to get out. And I look at all of this, it was a... Uh, It was an incredibly difficult uh, experience for everyone. Uh, But simultaneously and immediately, I think about how lucky and fortunate um, our community members were, are, um, that they managed to get out of Afghanistan and that our students are able to uh, focus on their studies or their, um, you know, for every day that is counted as, the number of days the Taliban have banned Afghan girls from education, those are the exact number of days our students have been able to stay in school and uh, continue with their education. And um, they are fortunate. They are lucky. They know it. Um, they feel guilty about it. They have the survivor's guilt. Um, and I know that it's a combination of all of this and the reality that will keep their focus on Afghanistan and My hope is that as they uh, continue on with their education and one day become young professional uh, women, Afghan women in exile, that as soon as the opportunity is presented to them to be able to go back to Afghanistan and be part of the rebuilding of our nation, that, um, that they will do that.
0: And what's it like for your students now that they are living and studying at Sola in Kigali?
2: You know, uh, if i if I uh, answer that from the perspective of our students, uh, they're they're quite busy. Uh, they have a <laughs> they have a uh, they have quite a robust uh, schedule, a daily schedule that uh, you know covers um, athletics and activities. and before they get uh, into classes, they have this remarkable assembly that happens every morning. And it's such a grounding experience because they start the day by how they used to start the day in Afghanistan, reciting the 99 Names of God and Prophet Muhammad and singing the Afghan National Anthem. And it's entirely student-led and they uh, they share their high points from the day before. Most recently, I was sitting through and um, you know, students would talk about my high point was finishing my... Uh, math project or my um, Pashto project uh, one of the languages spoken in Afghanistan or uh, one of them talked about uh, her high high point being um, reading the student handbook uh, with her roommate (laughs) which I thought was pretty interesting (laughs) and then they are they off they go to classes and they have afternoon activities and they get a bit of a chance uh, every day to be able to check in with their families whether that's a video call or a regular phone call and you know then it's a boarding school so they have dinner and study hall and uh, light out and so that keeps the girls quite busy but uh, the the part that really is fascinating is their engagement with other uh, schools in Rwanda. Um, they've had some remarkable opportunities to engage with other Rwandan students through various school activities and that's always the highlight for the girls. That and exploring the country. Rwanda is a beautiful country. And for our students to have the opportunity um, to go on these trips, it's it's been truly remarkable. And what is the future of Sola? The future of Sola is one that will, in the long run, uh, put an end to Taliban and their ideology. Um, because Sola's mission was, is, and always will be to educate Afghan girls. And that commitment, uh, for us, in the long run, is uh, one of the most effective ways to eradicate um, Taliban and that kind of ideology, not just from Afghanistan but from the region. So we are now in the process of establishing uh, permanence in Rwanda. We're focused on more than doubling our student population um, in the next couple of years in Rwanda, and. We're looking at, uh, we have some really uh, grand plans that I'm hoping to be able to announce more publicly and share more publicly soon. But John, we are, every single day we're working to uh, make sure that we create opportunities for Afghan girls, those who can come to us to our boarding school in Rwanda. And for those who cannot come to us, how, how do we figure out the best way to get a quality education to them, whether they're inside Afghanistan or outside of the country, so that these young women, as they receive an education, they are truly the future of Afghanistan. They will be instrumental in uh, rebuilding uh, Afghanistan. And I am very sure that they will play a significant role in that.
0: And in the meantime, what's it like right now for girls in Afghanistan?
2: Having lived through the first Taliban regime, I still cannot pretend to fully understand what it must be like uh, for Afghan girls to be living under the current Taliban regime uh, for, for Afghan women. But what I can tell you is that for a lot of them, Afghanistan has become a living hell. Women and girls are denied their dignity as human beings. They are denied their most basic human rights, their most basic Islamic rights um, to exist, to be, and yet they are the most committed, the bravest group of people across all groups in Afghanistan, across all ethnic groups. These are some of the most remarkable, brave women who continue to fight, who continue to protest, knowing that the next day their dead bodies could appear uh, in a dumpster, and yet they continue to um, speak up, to raise their voices. They fight, they have organized, they um, operate secret schools, Um, they have turned their homes into um, educational centers for girls in their communities women, educated women who have never been educators themselves, who were professional women, have now become educators because for them, all they talk about is that right now, it's a matter of transferring what we know, our knowledge to other girls. And that's what matters. And that's what they engage in. And it's really important that people here, especially here in the United States, know that. Um, the reality is that people in Afghanistan are fighting hard um, against this uh, group, a small minority of group that is not representative of Afghans. And Afghanistan is a beautifully diverse country, and the Taliban uh, don't represent any any of us. And, and so along with our community here in exile, I look inside afghanistan for inspiration but i also know that for people who are inside afghanistan for women who are fighting really hard it matters for them when the world pays attention to what they're doing they want to make sure that the world is not looking away and i urge people not to look away
0: don't look away shabana basid rasik is the founder of sola the school of leadership afghanistan Shabana, thank you for your amazing work. And thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thank you for having me, John.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Weiner, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Abortion rights is a key issue in 2024. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation, author of many books, most recently one co-written with Senator Bernie Sanders with the wonderful title, It's Okay to be Angry About Capitalism. John, welcome back.
3: It's an honor to be with you, John.
0: Well, a decade ago, our friend and colleague, Mark Cooper, said the best thing that could happen to the Democrats would be for the Republicans to succeed at outlawing abortion. And, of course, the Supreme Court did abolish constitutional protection for abortion rights and made state politics the crucial battleground for a woman's right to choose. And then we saw a surprisingly strong showing by Democrats in the midterms, and more recently, as you and I have talked about, a landslide in the Wisconsin Supreme Court election, where the progressive candidate who campaigned on abortion rights won by 200,000 votes, 10 times more than the margin of Biden's victory in 2020. And just a week or two after that, that Texas judge ruled that FDA approval of the abortion drug mifepristone was wrong, And that the drug should be banned nationwide the supreme court might reject that ruling they said they will decide by midnight wednesday we are talking before midnight wednesday they say they will announce whether they are going to order that access to mefepristone be temporarily restricted or fully prohibited while the case is appealed for a full hearing later this year but now Now it's on the table. What will Republican candidates say about a nationwide ban on mefepristone? I I looked this up. As of right now, there's only one Republican Senator, Cindy Hyde-Smith of Mississippi, who has publicly expressed support for a nationwide ban. And there's only one Republican presidential candidate, Mike Pence. Trump has been silent, Ron DeSantis has been silent, but how long will the Republicans be able to avoid taking a stand on a nationwide ban of mephipristone.
3: I think in many senses, John, that depends on the courts because by and large, I think Republicans would prefer that that the courts sort these issues out and that they don't have to actually be talking about them and 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 focusing on them. At the core of of this discussion is the reality that America is a pro-choice country. And the polling data in red states and in blue states suggests that uh, people are in favor of reproductive rights. They may have some distinctions within it. We shouldn't be unrealistic. Some people really want essentially no restrictions. Some people can accept some restrictions. But by and large, people want uh, women to have uh, access to safe and legal methods for ending a pregnancy that they don't want. But of course, If the courts choose as this Texas judge to restrict access to different methods of abortion, no matter what they are, that's going to just highlight the issue more and more. And it is going to make it more of a challenge. So ultimately, Republicans aren't going to be able to avoid these issues. They're going to have to deal with them. And uh, we are going to see an interesting dynamic because remember, Republican nominating processes, this process of choosing a candidate for president in 2024 will occur within the bubble. It won't be reaching out to the great mass of Americans. It will be reaching out to a very uh, energized and passionate base, which tends to be very anti choice. So, what you're going to see is some Republicans looking to the November election and trying to present at least a, a somewhat more mainstream stance. And then there will be someone, maybe a couple of candidates, who go to the extreme, right? And because of the heavy mobilization, on the part of anti-choice groups, they're gonna have viability there. So what we're gonna end up seeing, John, is uh, the issue of abortion, which Republicans have been able to be relatively united on in their basic opposition, potentially become one of those uh, delineating issues, one that actually divides them. And uh, we could theoretically see Republican debates where you have Republicans attacking one another for being insufficiently anti-choice, right? And it is also evidence that our friend Mark Cooper is right about a lot of things, but he was really right about this one.
0: I understand that Trump is going to be taking questions at an Iowa Republican pre-primary event this week or next week. And seems to me it's inevitable he's going to be asked about banning medical medication abortion and about Ron DeSantis's coming approval of a six-week ban on abortion that the state of a Florida a Florida uh, legislature has already uh, voted for. So isn't Trump going to have to say something in the next uh, week or two?
3: Oh I, I think you are making a lot of assumptions about Donald <laughs> yes Trump. I am uh, <laughs> you know, when Donald Trump doesn't want to say something about something he usually doesn't and he often gets away with it. Donald Trump has historically, Uh, kind of played the abortion issue in a very complex way. In talking to anti-choice groups, he's way over the top. He is the most passionate backer of uh, restrictions on abortion rights. By the same token, it's not usually a central theme of his politics. It's not something that he talks about a lot uh, when he is pressed on it. If he is pressed on it in Iowa, I suspect that he will go to whatever he thinks the crowd will want to hear. And that may be a a very firm anti-abortion stance because obviously he does not want to lose that evangelical base that's been very important to him politically. But uh, as with everything with Donald Trump, I think you might well get a statement one day and something else the next day.
0: Yeah. So the Wisconsin vote that was so striking and so important showed that uh, if... Democratic grassroots groups mobilize women and young people. This is a very effective way to turn out Democrats around abortion rights. The women issue has been talked about a lot. The youth issue, not so much. What do we know about the youth vote uh, in, in Wisconsin right now? Well, the women issue and the youth issue often intersect yeah
3: uh because uh one of the one of the key groups that we're seeing turn out in in dramatically increased numbers in a lot of election uh contests around the country is young women you know look one of the one of the challenges as regards young voters in general is that they tend to be mobile right they are going off to college they're going off to work they are in places where they're not perhaps so connected to the traditional political patterns right and so as a result uh we have to ten- It historically had lower turnout among young voters. That's shifting. It began to shift uh, really in 2018, even before the Supreme Court's ruling, uh, and in 2020, where you saw higher than expected uh, youth turnout. Uh, And in 2022, I think it was profoundly affected by the Supreme Court's ruling. I don't think there's any question in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race that we've been talking about on April 4. There was a major, major impact there. And the campuses around Wisconsin saw incredibly high turnout, uh, much higher than usual for a spring off-year election. Uh, I suspect that the lessons of 2022 and 2023 are going to be learned in a huge way going into 2024. And, uh, and you will see an incredible mobilization aimed at young people, focused on I think a a set of issues, including reproductive rights, also college costs, things like that. Uh, And I think finally, you may see the Democrats being able to break through in a major way here and and boost turnout significantly. I will tell you one quick uh, thing that along the way, there'll be a test this fall in Kentucky and there's a Kentucky gubernatorial election uh, where the current governor, Governor Beshear, is seeking reelection. Um, it's a tough state. You know, Kentucky is a a Trump state. Uh, Mitch
0: McConnell, I believe, comes from Kentucky. McConnell,
3: I've heard that, <laughs> and uh, and so uh, a Democratic governor running for re-election in such a state is going to have you know it's going to be a, a challenging re-election. But it'll be interesting to see how this issue plays in that race.
0: Of course, Republicans have noticed this effect also, and they're um, they have a problem, which is that that the united states lowered the age of voting from 21 to 18 by constitutional amendment which is basically impossible to change that was back in 1971 when we all those of us who were around in 1971 all thought that this would be an anti-war vote that would help prevent nixon from being elected which you may recall didn't happen not quite it got
3: mcgovern McGovern nominated necessarily get nixon beat.
0: So Republicans can't raise the voting age, but what they have been trying to do to uh, go after young voters is to try to prevent them from voting with, with uh, voter ID laws uh, that in some states prohibit the use of student IDs as acceptable documentation. In Wisconsin now, for example, what, what, is the, what are the ID requirements for students? It's a very good question. Uh, and it's it's
3: true in many, many states that this is a challenging circumstance. I think we could we can pretty well establish that the dumbest thing the Republicans could try and do would be to raise the voting age. Um, yeah. that would <laughs> that would um that would A go nowhere but B also uh probably you know intensify the passion among young people to go and vote. Uh but the the barriers are real. In Wisconsin, for instance, uh when Scott Walker was governor, uh they passed a number of barriers voter ID, basically. And one of the things that they did was that they created a circumstance where your your standard college ID couldn't be used to vote. And so you made young people kind of have to, who've come to college, have to jump through several hoops to, to be able to cast a ballot. And we've seen similar things to that across the country. Bottom line is, Republicans are apparently very, very concerned about young people voting. They've been concerned for a while. Now, I think as a result of this Wisconsin result, Scott Walker talking about it and other things, they're even more hyped up about it. And you'll see a number of of moves making it harder to vote. And it can involve everything from barriers on voter ID all the way over to placement of polling places, just making it easy to vote in a certain place. Uh, And then uh, we had one thing in Wisconsin that, that, you know, it's hopefully a trick that doesn't get exported. And that is they moved the primary elections in Wisconsin for partisan elections from September when students are at school at, at university to August when they're <laughs> not. Um,
0: yeah. And
3: I think that had a very significant impact, especially as regards to mobilization of young voters. So when you add it all up, it's a pretty, it's a pretty thorough package of, of tools that they have that they can use. And Uh, I think that Democrats, progressives, young voter activists have to be always on the watch because it's now quite clear. Again, if you listen to the remarks of Scott Walker after the Wisconsin election, Scott Walker leads a national foundation, uh, the Young America Foundation, I believe it is, that organizes on campuses. They're going to be looking for all sorts of avenues to make it harder, at least for young people who might be progressive and might be inclined to vote for Democrats to cast their ballots.
0: Of course, the other thing Republicans always try to do and are trying to do right now is to distract voters from the issues that everybody knows they care about with other issues. Ron DeSantis's favorite not right now is going against what he calls wokeness, which is bad. And uh, in, their view. Uh, in their view, especially focusing on trans issues. You know, a bans on trans athletes, bans on trans bathrooms. Is this really going to distract voters from bread and butter issues and abortion rights and minimum wage and the other things Democrats are pretty good at right now?
3: I don't think so. I mean, it was an issue that they tried to some extent in Wisconsin and it, it, it didn't go anywhere. The interesting thing about the Republican initiatives on trans issues is that it's so cruel. And, uh, and I think a lot of people realize that. Even folks who wouldn't traditionally have thought of themselves as being particularly engaged with LGBTQ issues, they look at this and they say, wow, this this just seems mean-spirited. And I do think it probably has a, an impact on the other side, that it, it mobilizes people and also causes a lot of people to see the Republicans as threatening when they get in a position of power. And one final thing on it is that so much of it is just education, just talking about things. Right, and discussing it. And this intersects with so many of the Republican efforts to uh, constrain what young people can learn about and discuss at, at the you know junior high, high school level. And I do think there's a pushback on this. And I I the where I'll point to, John, is on elections for school boards that have occurred this spring.
1: Mm-hmm. And there
3: have been a lot of them. This is the usually spring elections see a lot of school board elections around the country. And in Wisconsin, Illinois, and other states, what we've seen is that candidates who are backed by teachers and who um, have generally taken more progressive stance have done very, very well. And the, the kind of right-wing push into the school boards while still very active and very well funded, uh, doesn't seem to be getting quite the traction that they imagined that it would. And so it's gonna be very interesting to see whether they continue to push on these issues or whether they tend to back off and aim in other directions. Obviously, Ron DeSantis has staked his potential presidential run, on on this sort of fight yeah and so uh if he is the nominee i think you're going to hear a lot about it on the other hand uh i think that there are other republicans who may already be recognizing that that this is a uh, another issue that identifies republicans as cruel and also that identifies them as extreme yeah. and my sense is that they they may increasingly recognize that that's something they, sh- they should avoid
0: to conclude here by getting back to uh, the uh, abortion rights as an issue, big picture is that Judge in Amarillo, who ordered a nationwide ban on Mefepristone, was of course nominated because we had a Republican president and confirmed because we had a Republican Senate. In 2024, 23 of the 33 Senate seats that are up for election or reelection are held by Democrats, The 10 Republican seats are solidly in red states. That means we have a tremendous fight on our hands in 2024.
3: Yeah, I think it's fair to say Democrats are in a disadvantaged position. Uh, We know where the the challenging races are going to be. We have Democrats right now who hold seats in places like Montana. And so John Tester out there is going to have a a heck of a fight on his hands, no matter uh, how good a politician he is. You've also got Ohio, which has trended very much toward uh, the Republicans in recent years, Trump won it by eight points. Uh, Sherrod Brown, who's proven to be very resilient. He's up in a, in a what will be a tough race. Tammy Baldwin running in Wisconsin seems to have an advantage, but Wisconsin still is a battleground state. So you start to tick these off. And I haven't even gotten to West Virginia. Oh. Mention is up oh. or uh, Arizona, where you could even have a three way race with Kirsten Cinema, former Democrat, now independent, running with a Democrat and perhaps a right-wing Republican. So there's gonna be a lot of tough races around the country, Nevada gets in that mix as well. The Democrats are going to need more than just a popular political figure like a Sherrod Brown or a Tammy Baldwin. They're going to need to have some sort of national message, a national theme that that kind of raises the stakes in these races up. Uh, And and to do that, I think we're gonna end up talking about, or seeing them end up talking about some of the issues we've been discussing particularly reproductive rights. I think that is one of those national issues, even though different states have different approaches. Uh, I also think that uh, it's going to be very vital for them to have national messages as regards healthcare, education, a host of other issues. This falls to Biden. He's got to set the tone for the party. It won't be him alone, but it becomes very, very vital that he do this. In some states, they will distance themselves from, from Biden because of political dynamics. That always happens but there's gotta be that baseline message that uh, mobilizes people who are, especially in this new era of our politics, who are getting their information at a national level. Used to be, you had strong local newspapers, strong local radio stations, people got a lot of their information there. Now, increasingly, people get their information out of Washington, out of New York, whether we like it or not. They're getting it from cable TV, they're getting it from streamed media, they're getting it on social media. And in that circumstance, uh, the clearer the Democratic message is, the more likely they are to be able to hold the Senate. But it is going to be a very, very hard fight. In fact, there's a very real chance that Biden's reelect could be if he runs against Trump relatively easier, that Democrats could have, be in a pretty good position to take back the House of Representatives. But it will be the Senate that is sort of the perilous fight.
0: John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John. Thanks for talking with us today.
3: It is always an honor to be with you, John.
0: That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.